Kia ora, and welcome to episode 33 of 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand, our very first episode for 2021. I'm, my name is Jeremy Hanson, I'm here with Matt and Tash. Hello. <laughs> Firstly, um, I hope you both had good holidays. And Matt, in your holidays, you're a complete nerd. Um, <laughs> you wrote a really good column um, for stuff about... Um, the design of the campground, and I wanted to, I thought it'd be nice to revisit that here, um, and just talk about the kind of observations you were making about the way people live in the campground. But also, do people see that as a temporary state, so they give less of a shit? <laughs> um, what lessons can we learn from uh, campgrounds? I, I, th- I think um, the biggest lesson was. Um, not to be such an architect. So I... What do you mean? <laughs> well, I, th- I mean, I went in there and it, it was, to be fair, it's something which started bubbling away this time last year because we uh, we go camping at Christmas at family uh, every year. Um, and we... I was kind of thinking about it a bit then and it started bubbling away and bubbling away um, over the year. And I we went camping in sort of uh, Easter last year and we, the thoughts that started to form then and we really dived into it, went to campsites so right, to sort this out, you know, get, you know, understand what it all means. But in the end, and we'll, we'll, put, um, we'll circulate the article too, but in the end it was kind of, wasn't about, and, and the theory was how do people live when they're given a chance to do it without other people interfering? And mm. uh, the campsite is quite nice because it feels a bit like a subdivision. You've got a road down the middle, you've got sites alongside. How do people arrange their homes um, on a site in relationship to each other? Um, what's the kind of urban form of that? And of course, I was incredibly frustrated um, to find that there was no pattern, um, there was no order. Um, which is the sort of thing that an architect would do. Mm. But what it did teach me was that actually people were happily lived next to each other. You know, it was more about coexisting and um, and having um, being tolerant of relationships with people they don't know because they their tent faces that way and you can live within that sort of distance from each other. Um, it was about living on the edge of buildings, so not necessarily needing enclosure mm. as many time in the tent spend your time next to it and I think that's true of buildings as mm. well in New Zealand where I think the, the line in the article is we sort of use our buildings to harness just enough of our sort of temperate climate to make being outside comfortable mm. you, know, you can um, you live on the edge and in the shelter of things rather than necessarily being wrapped up um, I don't think I put it in the article but of course the the motorhome is the apartment building of, uh, of campsites. <laughs> <laughs> Impenetrable and large. Um, so no, it's and yeah, more about the, the I think the, the nature of Kiwis and the nature of how we um, live outside and how we live and how we enjoy each other's company. Do you think it's fundamental? Because it's really interesting to me how much privacy people are prepared to sacrifice at a campsite when back in many of the places they live, they're probably erecting fences and pulling curtains and making noise complaints. Well, I was going to actually sort of comment on a similar thing, and I wonder to what extent they're able to put up with that for a period of time, but if they were there for longer, would they start erecting temporary fences or something mm. like that to give themselves, you know, a greater stake on their claim and some and more privacy, perhaps? I don't know. Did you, did you get a sense of that yeah, at all? I don't know. I mean, the, the, to your point, too, people are always coming and going, so mm-hmm. your, your neighbourhood changes all the time. Um, I think, I think though, the, the point of, one of the other points of the article was, where's the variety gone in, in housing? Where's the sort of, you know, why is it, 
there, there is this delivery of, um, of vanilla um, sort of centrist homes in the same way everywhere. Where's the variety? Where are the stuff that's around the edge? Where's the, the, the um, where are the places that people who don't want to live that way live? And mm. I suspect actually that might be the most sellable typology, but is it the most livable? Because um, there is a shortage, right? I mean, the, the lack of diversity in New Zealand housing is a problem. We have a shortage of one-bedroom places, for yep. example. Um, and you'd think that the market would deliver in that really dumb way, but it's delivering in a way that's mostly ignorant of demographic trends in terms of the way the population is ageing and the way people are tending to live in a more cellular fashion generally rather than in larger family groups. Mm. Mm. And you've got to maximise your site. You've got to put as much GFA on your site as you can to sell it for as much as you can. To, you know, it's um, well, finances drive a different result too. As long as you can sell it, as long as you can sell that five bedroom timber with a board home with a clay tile roof um, next to the other five bedroom home with a with a board clay roof then you're fine right it's, it's <laughs> the, the the developer of a single site doesn't necessarily worry about the wider hole which brings us to the housing market which we sort of covered a bit when we talked about wellington's nimby situation and density but um i wonder what you thought tash because it feels like the anxiety about new zealand's housing crisis is finally belatedly reaching a kind of fever pitch where almost everybody is pissed off about it and really urgent action is required. I guess a couple of questions for you. Do you think we're going to see sufficient corrective action from our current government to make a difference? And you know, how long will it take to kind of undo the mess that we've created as a society where there's this drastic shortage of housing units, but also myriad problems of affordability across the country? Well, I think the affordability thing is kind of almost a separate thing, and it's a the affordability um, issue is informed by a whole lot of different things from um, regulation, um, demand, um, cost of materials or monopoly on materials to, you know, so it's not just one thing, it's a whole bunch of things um, and it probably needs um, a really in-depth look to start to unpack some of those factors. Um, in terms of variety, well I think we are seeing um, more uh, more types of houses being developed in our urban areas. Multiple, the dwelling consents in Auckland are rising quite quickly now, right? We are seeing well, a responsive are. situation to this and more density is being achieved as well. Yeah, mm. but I think we could still do a lot more in terms of providing different tenure options. Uh, yeah. And it's something that gets, um, it, it's quite a common thing to be talked about overseas, but you know, uh, Tenure for um, our listeners who aren't familiar with the term is really talking about how you live in your home. Eh? You, do you own it? Do you rent it? Do you have a rent-to-own um, you know, rent situation? Are you, is it a shared equity? And we're quite limited in what we offer at the moment. There's sort of renters and owners and very little in between. Um, whereas in other countries there are um, a greater variety of ways that people can get into housing. And I think that's something that we need to unpack. Mm. Um, and I think the lending criteria also on different types of development is, is very, very limited. Um, and to that extent, I think, you know, the, the mass um, home developers 
have kind of got that sewn up because they're effectively doing design and build in one and banks are very happy to lend on that model mm. um, whereas if you're say having something designed say by an architect you can't des- borrow on the design fees for example and right. you know if there's other types of models co-housing and so on they find it more difficult to get access to lending is my understanding right that's really interesting mm. I think the, the Nightingale model which I I've only really dove into I know it's been around a long time I'm late to the party but the the uh, I started looking to that quite a bit last year trying to understand that and I have uh, to talk by them says we set out to make to design a, a a good apartment building but actually what we ended up doing was designing a development model mm. um, a different way of delivering the apartment building and that drove the result and it made makes you realize that actually as an architect you very small part of that you could we might have ideals about building you know, more one beds and things like that but there are so many other big drivers macro drivers that um, uh, stop you from doing that um, it never, you know, it's never a, though that variety we started talking about um, is actually very difficult to achieve for mm. banking, all sorts of other reasons sitting behind the scenes. You're both architects and you understand the housing situation on really, and, the, and its complexity. I kind of alternate between feeling complete despair about the situation and thinking, well, it's so bad that it's actually going to force action. I wanted to ask the two of you if you're kind of optimistic or pessimistic about things getting on the right track this parliamentary term? Well, it depends which day of the week <laughs> you talk to me on. Yeah. I, have, I have moments where, you know, I I'm, I'm have this um, sort of, one of the hats I wear is as an urban designer and I um, have the opportunity to review a lot of housing that is coming through and there are times during that that I think, oh, this might be really exciting, but there are also times when I think, oh, yeah, this is the direction we're going in. So yeah, look, and I think that there is actually a lot being done. I don't think that it's a case of inaction. Certainly from my viewpoint, I'm seeing, you know, waves of new houses being built. And there's different triggers and they are starting to address, um, you know, there's the state issue, but then there's issues of affordability. Um, and those are being addressed through different mechanisms it's quite hard to get these wheels these very very big wheels up and moving and so I think that you will start to see certainly in some of our cities over the next few years what I'm seeing at a planning stage that will start to filter through uh, you know in terms of what's being built um, is it enough I don't know mm. I, and and you know will it provide the you know the the impetus for um, a more private uptake of different housing models I don't know my, mm. my suspicion is that it will filter through and that you will see different types of houses different types of so walk-up apartments becoming available at a market level that that haven't necessarily been initiated through a kaiunga or a scheme um but how long that takes to filter down i don't know you see you see things like ockham um, starting to deliver non-standard outcomes and i think and they are clearly becoming successful because every time you know every wee while they open another thing or they've certainly got things in the way and, and they've got a number of projects already done so um, and the more of those there are it clearly is a market for it because they continue to produce them and um, the more of those they are the more normalized they become and the mm. more people realize that they do have a choice um, we're seeing 
and hearing more and more about build to rent. So mm-hmm. that's that's quite a. Um, I think that will change how people um, how people perceive their own apartment buildings. Because I think that the amenity provision in a build to rent project is quite different to the uh, the a standard apartment building community amenities, possibly even smaller apartments, because when you want to have people around for dinner, you go down and rent a room downstairs mm. next to the restaurant, you know, and you have a private function down there or birthday or whatever it is. Um, so there's, it will change, it, it, at least it will give a shift um, in, the, in the type of higher density living that you have available to you, the choices that you have. So... Yeah, I think there is, you asked, you know, we see it being solved. I'm excited about the future of that, uh, the future of housing New Zealand, because I think there'll be a lot of change, and I think there'll be, the pressure is beginning to be applied, and, and we're starting to see people looking at alternative construction methods, um, alternative tenure models. Mm. Um, you're seeing uh, Kaing Aura start to think about um, different tenure models as well, which, going back to your point earlier was explained to me that internationally you in terms of social housing you might have an A type tenant, B type tenant, a C type tenant depending on their needs and in New Zealand we have um, we have traditionally delivered to the C type tenant, those who are in most need. Um, what we don't do is provide a, a, a necessarily a, a transition between that and B and C type tenants gotcha. in the private market. Whereas UK you have mm-hmm. um, you have uh, rent to own, you have um, you know, shared ownership of you might own part of your home, councillors owns the other part of your home. Um, you know, there are lots of different tenure models that enable people in the continuum to live well. And, um, to, and to also then have some mobility between those um, you know, yep. different um, zones, whereas at the moment I think it's probably quite hard to get out of, um, say, a, a state home into some, you know, effectively more secure mm. um, tenure. Yeah. Are you both confident in the eternal question, I guess, about the place of architecture in all this development? Or do you see architecture, and I don't mean, um, I mean good quality design outcomes that will last for generations. Is that central enough in this process, or do you see architecture getting pushed aside a little bit? Like, are we getting good quality design outcomes from the majority of this kind of thing? Again, it's a really mixed bag, to mm. be honest. Um, is that okay? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think it is. I mean, I think that um, architects will need to be involved more. Um, is there, um, and, and hopefully there will be kind of a pool of knowledge that's built over time about the way to approach these um, things as well. Um, there are some approaches that are less successful than others. You know, it's right, actually doing apartments isn't rocket science, but it's, um, you know, a lot of it's around circulation and so on. And there are some models of that that work much better than others, but there's all sorts of other factors as well, around like fire being a massive one, <laughs> and cost, and, and car parking still. And I guess what I was going to say earlier about the housing choice is to my mind, that also goes hand in hand with the urban condition around it and the 
sort of services that are provided. So, for example, the Occam carless models where, you know, there's no parking provided are possible in areas where you have choice about how you move around and where perhaps, you know, a, a hop car um, that's shared amongst tenants um, will work because people's um, need for that is infrequent. However, if you've got a walk-up building that's in the midst of a um, suburb that's um, less well connected by public transport, then you need a car and, um, you know, it'll depend on where you work and, and so on. So one can't happen with the, without the other. Mm. If I frame it in a different way, the question, given that the crisis is so serious, um, do you see it as being greater risk for architecture that gets tossed aside as a kind of unnecessary luxury at a time like this? We always feel that way. Jeremy. The housing um, the bums on seats, just I, get the units built and deal with the consequences later kind of thing. I think that there are there is kind of a certain part of the market that is operating like that and, and it's driven by it's driven by cost, building costs which aren't coming down at all. Um, and then there are other areas and look Kainga Aura is um, in some instances doing some really um, good quality work and I guess their um, interest is somewhat different because they're owners, they yes. have this, you know, an interest in the maintenance of these buildings and so on. Again, it, but it's a really mixed bag and it depends on where the, you know, the apartments are happening, what the market's like, all the rest of it. So I can't really answer you with a blanket, mm. you know, mm. um, statement. I think that for every really cracking building, you know, you see there's probably still <laughs> a bunch of others which, you know, perhaps are less admirable. But you see opportunity existing in that space. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that the, the in the short term there will be you know, and New Zealand's entire sort of development has been short term, uh, <laughs> but the um, in the short term uh, the people building these things will be building them at risk. So the, the mm. first person to go ahead and do a build to rent project of some scale will have to take a shot and take a breath before you know okay, didn't know if it's going to work. And there will be, I think your point of, you know, the architecture might be something um, that gets put to one side. Kind of not sure why. I think the architects, um, you know, by, by choosing a bad architect, you don't save a lot, um, but you probably cost yourself quite a bit. Mm. Um, so um, the, you know, the, but there will be corners cut, and they'll and the the bottom line will be tight, and um, and the trimming of things and and that will probably end up with some um, average results uh, in the long term if you look at social housing in the UK for instance where they've been doing it for many more years in a much more mature way um, I suspect architects are uh, right in the centre of that and and think about architects in the construction industry we're starting to talk about buildings of much greater scale much greater complexity it's not going to be the sort of thing you can roll out with a set of plans across multiple sites um, it will be. It will require a great level of detail and and um, and attention. And the the cost of uh, doing it badly will be greater. So in the long term, we should see more architects involved in more homes um, because they'll need them. They'll need architects to be involved. Mm. And yeah, whether we do it well or not, um, yeah, it, I suspect to say there'll be some poor results to begin with, but. Um, will mature into it as well and people will people will buy the first build to or rent the first build to rent project in Auckland 
because it's the first builder in project in Auckland. When the second one pops up, there'll be choice and people start to become more discerning. So um, the first one might even be built badly. It doesn't need to be good, it just needs to be first. Um, so yeah, I think long term or medium term, yeah, I'm positive about the, the value that architects can provide and the input they'll have. But it's probably going to be a bumpy road on the way. <laughs> on that positive note, I wonder if you'd like to both or all of us could look ahead and talk about the things you're looking forward to in 2021, whether they're projects that are underway or just kind of things you're generally excited about design-wise. Well, I mean, we were just having a, a chat um, before we started about the way that the downtown area here in Auckland is um, shaping up and it's been a bit of a long <laughs> road but things where we are the end is in sight and it's looking pretty good I mean the there have been a number of really transformational um, moves down there I mean QE's Two Square is um, a completely different place. Um, uh, exactly, thank you. Um, and uh, the downtown, what former downtown area, now Commercial Bay, um, has really changed the nature of the streets around it and the public space and it's much better for it you know we have a ground floor that actually opens up to the street and it feels like a good place to wander right through that area and back through to Britomart. Yeah, I think it's much more civic doesn't it? It does. Mm. This is slightly, um, this is more than 2021 but uh, further down the track but related is the CRL and I yes. think when, that, yes. yeah, when they open those doors and it's still a few years away now We've had another America's Cup here by then. Um, the the um, to get it The I think that will make that will make Auckland completely different. And I, I think that I'm interested to see. The, we're already seeing opportunities pop up, pop up along in anticipation of it. Um, and I think they're pretty exciting. Um, and go back to the housing thing mentioned before, but the, the Stephens Lawson home ground with the mission, I think that's that's an interesting building from a from a social perspective, from a um, a So just to interrupt, this is the building that Stephens Lawson have designed for the Auckland City mission and yes. it's now halfway complete. Yeah. Mm. And it's a CLT building, so cross owner timber, it's so it's new construction methodologies and and I think it's just an exciting thing to see happening. Um, so I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing that finish this year. I think mm. it probably will be. Um, so that would be great. Um, Is that the kind of thing you were sort of alluding to before, where this not copying the building, but it will provide a degree of knowledge and a model, perhaps not just for kind of serving homeless people, but also for building, um, you know, multiple units at scale and having services on site and things that could be not replicated, but you know, learn lessons from. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think it's quite a specific building. I, I don't know its program entirely, but um, it's quite specific to its uh, its intended use. But it will, yes, it will be a sort of building where we will learn lessons. And it will, it's, I think it's contributing to architecture New Zealand in a whole bunch of ways, a social way to talk about. But I'm interested in how it's built. Same. You know, CLT, it's, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, 12 stories or so of, of timber. I think that's exciting. Mm. So yeah, I, I, I think that would be a great project to um, watch come to completion this year. I think that would be great. What about you, Jeremy? What are you looking forward to? I uh, like you. I'm really excited about kind of seeing the Ferry Basin 
kind of project mm. completed on Key Street in Auckland because that's sort of one of the final pieces of the puzzle. Land Labor doing that, I believe. Mm. Um, that extra connection to the water, but also we'll have, we'll get be much closer to that relatively seamless connection all the way from Wynyard Quarter right through to Britomart. Really. Mm. Um, and Auckland despite the port's red fence, finally getting closer to that promise of being a city that acknowledges its harbour and allows its residents to kind of interact with it and the provision of kind of quality public space. Um, I think all of that kind of thing is really exciting and the construction fatigue is deep in the centre of the city um, because of all those projects and I think it's interesting to watch it happen because I think as soon as those projects are completed the pain of the construction fatigue evaporates really quickly. Yes. Um, but because of the uneven effects of COVID and other things like it, um, the pain is kind of really unevenly spread throughout the city. Mm. Um, some parts of Queen Street look quite deserted, for example, um, and there is this kind of overall drift towards the water. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's going to also just um, help Auckland achieve that sense of feeling like a proper urban destination rather than a scattered collection of suburbs with mm. a few tall buildings at the centre. Mm. Um, the city centre is becoming a kind of real destination in which you can not only live very happily um, and comfortably in a great diversity, people already do that, um, but when people come here that it'll offer an experience that occupies them for more than a couple of hours really mm. easily. Mm. I, I've had uh, need this morning, I get off from the bus and down to Big Park, I walked through Windyard Quarter and not long after I got to work this morning I walked through to Britomart um, and it's as, as the first time I've been through the bottom of town with the scaffolds coming down and um, well, since the Christmas break so a whole bunch of stuff has been has been finished and think about it, those spaces through Windyard Quarter, you know, it, it's, it's becoming walkable, it's becoming mm -hmm. pleasant, it's becoming, um, I, I changed the way I get off my bus now to walk down um, a, a different route to get to the office because the park's been opened and the coffee shop at the end of that road is thankful for it because mm. he said, oh, I'll walk past it. So it's, um, I think, yeah, it's starting to become clear, the vision that was set down must be 10 years ago, it's starting to become clear and it's, um, yeah, it'd be great to see that emerge. You know, we were talking before while COVID's here it's quite nice to get it all done and tidy before the tourists come back and mm. um, so it's in whatever form that may be <laughs> that's right yeah that part's going to be really interesting to see how I know I think we don't have design projects happening yet that are really responding to the current situation and the sense of strange isolation from COVID and also we actually don't know what the tourism market is going to look like no in five years time it may not bounce back in the same way ever um, and I suspect the airline industry has been so thoroughly smacked around that it'll take a long time for that to rebuild and also that's a very carbon intensive industry so do we want it to, do we want to return to the era of mass jet travel in the same way and will we be able to, it might, you know, fares might be double what we used to pay and that kind of thing. Oh, who knows? Or will everyone have so much cabin fever they just need to go somewhere. <laughs> exactly. But it also makes you think, I, I was thinking about how tourism provides the impetus for so much architecture. Yeah convention centres, um, museums and galleries to a degree. The Ferry Basin was kind of, you know, instigated in a sense by the urgency to get something done by the America's Cup, which, you know, hasn't happened for various reasons. Um, so without that impetus, how do we create reasons for ourselves to shape our cities in imaginative ways? Because I feel like 
In most cities actually, but particularly in Auckland, it's always been about presenting the best possible face we can to overseas visitors and impressing them. It's like, what do we do if it's more about us and yep. is it going to be more difficult to get the commitment to get those kind of projects off the ground? I think it's, that's such an interesting question and you know, before each significant um, world event like the Rugby World Cup and so on, there's been, been this burst of development, often in quite an ad hoc short-term thinking kind of way. Um, the CRL for me is a really interesting one because it's actually one of our, and boy it took a long time to get off the ground, but it is one of the first things that is actually about it's really Aucklanders, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and so maybe with that and some of the um, urban moves that have come with downtown, even though they haven't necessarily, some of them have been kind of civic focused, that will give us the confidence to thinking, thinking about, you know, how do we design for ourselves? Mm. That seems like a good point to wrap it up. So thanks everybody for listening. Thank you Arch for editing. Arch will be back for our next episode. And I forgot the details of who our guest is in the next episode, but I think Arch has organised that. Yes. Do you two have it at your fingertips or now? We do, but maybe we'll just keep it under wraps. Okay, we'll and keep it under wraps. And t- you know, you'll just have to watch out. We'll keep it under wraps and we thank you for listening. Yeah. And we also welcome your feedback. So if there's stuff you'd like to hear us discussing, if there are questions you'd like to put to us, if there are guests you'd like to hear from that we can invite on the podcast. If you'd um, like to be a guest. If you'd like to be a guest. <laughs> Self-promoters are welcome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> please get in touch with us on our 76 Small Rooms Facebook, Twitter and Instagram feeds. But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Ka kite anō. Bye-bye.